Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting across the world from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. We are teaching kids to be entrepreneurs, and it is not before time. In Austin, Austin's a fantastic place in Texas. In Austin, people stroll the aisles between 110 booths manned by 230 local entrepreneurs who will sell to about 2,300 customers. And the sellers, the entrepreneurs, are kids as young as five years old. We're at the Peace Mansion where Jeff Sandelfer, a billionaire Texas oil man, and his wife, they started Acton Children's Business Fair, a series of events where kids five to 15 spend half a day selling services and goods that they create. There's expected to be 50 affiliated children's business fairs in the US this year, so they've gone from one to 50, which is a fantastic effort, and they're all created by word of mouth. Across the US, a nascent movement is educating kids in entrepreneurship. In Austin alone, there are foundations, there are after-school programs, there's summer programs, there's high school classes, there's all sorts of stuff all training young entrepreneurs. And this month, South by Southwest will feature multiple multiple sessions about youth entrepreneurship and a youth startup pitch competition. Now, one of Austin's most ambitious programs is the nation's first K-12 public school entrepreneurship track. The program culminates in an incubator class in which teams of students launch businesses and compete for funding. And this is followed by an accelerator class in which they run the businesses. The program, now in its second year, created a non-profit incubator ed, incubator ed, (laughs) to license its incubator class curriculum to schools around the country and more than 60 schools in 30 states have signed up. The reality is that work out there in the marketplace has changed. You know, we pretty much must all become entrepreneurs. We're heading for a period, whether you like it or not, where there'll be 60 plus percent of people unemployed and we'll have a universal wage which has been trialled in many countries now, including the United States, and it's working well. And uh, so we're all going to have to be entrepreneurs, or at least we're going to have to think like entrepreneurs because the jobs of the new economy are ones where you have to be entrepreneurial. By the year 2020, it's estimated that 40% of all jobs will be entrepreneurial in nature. And what we have now is a factory-style education system, and that just simply doesn't prepare kids for the new environment we're facing. The question is whether entrepreneurship and the traits that underpin successful entrepreneurs can, can, can be learned. Of course, the students at Acton came from households that pushed them to achieve, 
upper middle class households, through the children's business fair, all kids, doesn't matter whether they're wealthy or not, can take advantage of this entrepreneurship program. Though the children's business fair is open to all kids, the efforts really aren't reaching a huge chunk of underprivileged communities. And if youth entrepreneurship action aims to help a generation navigate the new world, it will have to go a hell of a lot wider. For example, across town in Austin, David Crockett High School houses 1,500 primarily Hispanic and lower income students. And less than a decade ago, it was in danger of being shut down. It was a crappy school. And in 2008, the district hired a young principal from New York City. And since then, the school has grown to become a celebrated success with the launch of the Student Inc. program two years ago. Crockett has emerged as a model for other local schools. Their year will culminate in a Shark Tank-style pitch competition to score 2500 bucks in grants from a local VC firm. And next year, they'll run their companies in an accelerator class. So all of that's fantastic. So that's not only the upper socioeconomic group kids, but also the lower. Poorer kids also are being taught to be entrepreneurs. Now, Student Inc. begins in elementary school with a program called Micro Society in which the whole school runs a mock small town, compete with businesses and government agencies, and they hold regular market days in which the town comes to life. So in middle school, kids on the entrepreneurship track run an on-campus store that sells school spirit gear such as T-shirts and beanies. But of course, one of the biggest tasks is trying to light a fire under all of the groups. But ultimately, it comes down to that underlying drive that these kids have. It's easy to be a entrepreneur, but it takes a special kind of student to want to put in the work and make that leap. But we have to say it's really on the right track. Think about it. If I offer you two kids, run graduates with top grades, has a lot of book knowledge and knows how to score an A on a test, and the other kid has built a business and maybe broken even on it. He knows how to go out and hustle. He did a couple of internships and he's got a growing network. You're an employer. Which one are you going to take? The one that scored the A on the test or the one that's been out there into the market and actually done it. I know which one I'd pick. Now, we've talked a lot over the last couple of years, last few years, probably five or six years now, about the shared economy. Well, the shared economy has fizzled. And it's, for example, it's estimated, how does, I'll explain first how the shared economy works. It's estimated that the US has about 90 million power drills each of which is used for an average of five minutes in total. So you need to drill some holes. You go and buy a drill, you drill some holes, you put the drill away, never use it again. That's an extraordinary waste of resources. There's currently a seismic shift from individual getting and spending 
towards a rediscovery of collective good. So, of course, the answer is to rent the drill or rent out your drill to other people for a small fee. Let's say you pay 40 bucks for it, you rent it out at two bucks a pop, 20 rentals, you got your money back, everybody's happy. Everybody else saved 38 bucks. This is the basis of the sharing economy. It can apply to lawnmowers, garden tools, ladders, in fact, almost every household appliance. It can apply to trailers and boats and dune buggies and bicycles and all sorts of things. So, therefore, sharing economies have sprung up everywhere, going back many years since Ecomoto launched in 2007, that's 10 years ago, and it's estimated that 3,700 sharing companies have set up a loan in the last, set up in the US alone in the last 10 years. So 3,700 sharing US, sharing companies just in the US. Now, Snapgoods, which was one of them, drew about 30,000 visitors a month at its peak and signed up about 100,000 users. But there's a discomforting (laughs) incongruity. I'm having trouble tonight. Between enthusiasm for the concept and actual use. Everybody loved the idea. They said they'd definitely use it, but when push came to shove, they didn't. It's too hard because you've really got to find somebody that's in the street. I mean, if you want to use a drill for five minutes, um, you've really got to find somebody close by. It was a great idea. It struck hard, but when it died, no one noticed. Almost every single site has failed. The public just doesn't care. It's easier to buy the item when you go up the street. These are the sort of good luck stories we like to um, we like to hear. In 2011, Ivan Owen created a crazy metal functional puppet hand, and he posted a short video of it on YouTube. A carpenter in South Africa, who had lost his fingers in a woodworking accident, contacted him, and they worked through various prototypes and designs via Skype and email. They didn't actually meet, so through Skype and email, they put together prototypes using objects that they could find around their homes and in their respective areas. Then the mother of Liam, a five-year-old boy who was born with no fingers on his right hand, contacted them to see about the creation of a tiny version of this hand. So after creating the first prototype for Liam, Ivan realised he would quickly outgrow the hand because Liam's hands are going to be growing. And he started researching the use of 3D printing to create the next version. The 3D printer company kindly donated two 3D printers and together they created the first 3D printed mechanical hand. But instead of patenting the design for this new hand and making a profit out of it, Ivan published the design files as open source and public domain so that people could download and print these devices for anyone that needed one anywhere on the planet. In July 2013, John Scholl, 
a professor at RIT, started a Google Plus group and created a map for makers to share the locations so that people who were seeking a hand could find the closest volunteer. They called it eNable, which is very clever. And the Enable community started with about 100 or so people who were simply offering to print the files that were already in existence. And then designers started joining in and they started innovating, collaborating and resharing the improved file designs. Within that first year, the Enable community grew from 100 members to over 3,000 members, all donating their time. They created over 750 hands for people around the world. Last year, the volunteers doubled to nearly 7,000 members and approximately 2,000 hands were created and gifted to individuals in 45 countries. All of these 3D hands and arms, they were free to the end user. That is really cool. So it's incredible to think that a simple prop mechanical hand was the catalyst for what is now a global movement and a community of makers, tinkerers, artists, designers, humanitarians, teachers, parents, children, engineers, occupational therapists, medical professionals, there's philanthropists and inventors, and every day... There are people who are using their 3D printers and design skills to create free 3D printed hands and arms for those who need them. One of the great things is that there are now children who are learning to print, build and assemble their very own hands. So kids that are handicapped with perhaps one hand are now making their own hands. So together... We can change the world. It just needs a whole bunch of us to get together, put our mind to it, and we can solve any problem that we are faced with. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletters? We're now sending it out to about 1.7 million subscribers every day. It's a great read. It's very simple, very easy. You can read it very quickly. Most days you can read it in 30 seconds. Every day it's different. One day it's about medical. The next day it's about apps. The next day it's about employment. The next day it's about 3D printing. And then it's about flying cars. It's about any topic that is um, topical today. So I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and do what loads of other people are doing and enroll for my daily newsletter. Give it a shot. Try it for a couple of weeks. If you don't find it fascinating and doesn't give you stuff to talk about when you go out to dinner or when you're around the cooler, the water cooler, unsubscribe. But I bet you won't because other people aren't. It takes just 30 seconds to read and it'll keep you up to date with all the business news that's important. Now, my guest today is a great guy and uh, his name's Per Sofers. And uh, that's S-J-O-F-O-R-S. And he describes himself as a rainmaker. I've seen this guy at work and I'm involved with him and he makes things happen. And he never gives up. He also tells it exactly the way it is. Now, Per's built many very, very successful and profitable businesses, sales and marketing companies in the US and in Europe. He conceptualized and developed the pricing research service and the process of his business, Atenga, 
Now, companies using Atenga services often enjoy twice the growth rate of their competitors while enjoy, while substantially increasing profits. So, and, and Per's been through this with, with me. It is absolutely amazing how much difference pricing your products correctly can make. You know, you can be off just a little bit and it can cost your company a fortune. People also discount or sell at a price that they don't need to when they can increase their um, sales considerably. I'll be back with Peter. I'll be back with Per immediately after this short break on the Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the part of the show where we talk to extraordinary people, people that have enjoyed great success and that have achieved something memorable and people that are really making a difference. You know, there are some extraordinarily talented people on this planet, and uh, I love to speak with them because they have so much that they can teach us. I think um, the last five and a half years or whatever that I've been doing this program, I have learned more than what I'd learned in the sort of 40 years prior to that being at the pointy end of business. Now, my aim in these interviews is to find out what makes these people tick, what are the challenges that they've faced, because usually they're the challenges that all of us have faced, and uh, they can give us some advice on how not to make those mistakes or how to overcome those obstacles. And whether you're an entrepreneur or a CEO, there are many disciplines of business that you need to excel at and in this segment we interview people who excel at one or more of these disciplines and we try to give you an insight as to why each of these disciplines are also very important to your business. I don't think there's any doubt that pricing your product is an extremely important part of being successful and uh, as you know, I consult to many companies and it's extraordinary how many businesses that you go into that don't really have any idea of what their true cost 
of their product is and they usually price according to what their competitors price at and uh, more often than not they leave a lot of money on the table now my guest today is per sofas who describes himself as a rainmaker looking outside today not a lot of rain and he makes things happen and he never gives up he also tells it the way it is he's a very blunt sort of a guy and it's the sort of person that you need to have come into your company and and uh, assist you he's built many successful and very profitable sales and marketing companies in Europe and the US and per conceptualized and developed the pricing research service and the process of his business Atenga. The core of this pricing research is to measure willingness to pay and correlate that with decision and value drivers. Company using attending Atenga's services often enjoy twice the growth rate of the competitors while substantially increasing profits. Now, what I'm most interested in is PERS processes with regard to establishing price. Too many entrepreneurs and business people in general misprice their product, leave a lot of money on the table, and poor pricing can rapidly lead to your demise. Hi, Per. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Um, thank you very much for that introduction, Bob. Um, that, was, um, um, that was very good. Thank you. Um <laughs> So, how are you? I'm good. How are I you? Good. I haven't seen you since last Saturday, in fact. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, why do so many companies get pricing wrong? I think um, I think it's really because two things. First of all, um, the, the kind of pricing um, education um, you have in... in uh, in business school is is just way too um, high level, way too academic, and uh, it, it's it's not really something that you um, that you can take home to your company or when you there are the executive in a company. Um, it's very difficult to apply it in 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 real life, and and in fact that was the inspiration that um, that made me start Atenga. Um, because we did pricing experiments in some of these companies I ran, and, and some of those experiments worked beautifully, um, and some completely blew up. Right. Um, and and, and what, I, uh, what I had learned in business school, and also what I could read about pricing, was um, essentially useless information. Right. And um, so, so I set out to, to conceptualize this this process that, that we've been using ever since, uh, well, ever since I, I started the Tenga, and, um, and, and uh, it's very different, it's very practical, um, we've done some 500 projects, and I have 499 references. That's very good. Now, so, why is setting prices right? so important apart from the fact that um, if you charge too much you're going to fail and if you charge too little you're leaving money on the table apart from that why is it really important to charge the right price um, because first of all the price needs to um, the price 
Price doesn't live in a vacuum. Right. And um, <clears throat> price, your price is a, is a um, or I should say your customer's willingness to pay is a result of all you do in the company. Yes. Um, it, it is a result of your product or service, of course, but it's also a result of your marketing, how you position yourself, how you differentiate yourself um, towards, um, um, towards your competition. And like you said in, in the introduction, um, many, maybe the vast majority of companies either um, set price by cost plus, meaning yeah. they, take the, they take their cost and they maybe double it or they maybe quadruple it. Um, or they may add 20% on it, and, and that's how they set price. Um, and, and that would inevitably lead to either um, that they leave money on the table or that they do not enjoy the sales volume that they, they should have. Um, so uh, these, <clears throat> these sort of non-scientific ways of, of setting price is 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 um, is very detrimental to a business. Now, it leads to another thing when you when you're not pricing right, and and that is, uh, it leads to commoditization, because you look at your competitors, you set prices maybe similar to them, um, but you also look at um, their their products or their services, and and you sort of copy pieces of it, and 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 it's that's not. Um, I mean, every every industry drives towards commoditization, but it is the differentiation that you, as an executive, provides in your company that gives you pricing power. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. Um, something interesting is that I, I also think that in a lot of instances that I've been involved with, people actually. Um, underestimate their actual cost and it wasn't until um, I did some work for uh, one of the biggest supermarket chains in America and look at the way they cost their products. Um, most companies that I've dealt with sort of buy a product for $2 and sell it for $2.40 and think they've made 20%, whereas mm-hmm. the supermarkets take into account the amount of electricity that's used while the product's on in their store, the shelf space they use, how much that real estate costs, how much it costs a storeman to move it from A to B, how long it takes to stock the shelves, and they put incremental charges on all of those um cost areas and so what what was a simple two dollar purchase of the product that that they bought from the manufacturer could be a three dollar cost by the time they take into account all their additional costs and most mm-hmm. businesses I find miss that step completely yeah no you're absolutely right and the the, the, um, the but but the cost is still not a basis for selling price. Right. Um, I mean, because in, in your example here, it could be that um, that um, actual willingness to pay for this particular product is um, you know two eighty, okay? Right. And 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 <laughs> and then the, the supermarket has to make a decision: is this a loss leader? Does it bring in people to the store, and therefore we need to have it? Um, or does the product has what we call an halo effect? So 
yes, we're losing money on this, but it drives sales of an adjacent product. Think um, pasta and, and pasta sauce, okay? Right, yeah. Um, and, 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 and therefore, you have to make a strategic decision. Even if we're losing money on this product, um, we need to have it. On the other hand, uh, they may also make the decision that uh, we're not going to lose money on this. We're just not going to carry it. Sure. There's another, and what you said about um, a lot of other, the positioning of, of the company and how important that is. There was a report a couple of years ago by PricewaterhouseCoopers that said that um, market, market service leaders, companies that were leading in customer service, um, can actually charge 10 to 13% more than their competitors without losing the sale. So if you're perceived as being the, the customer service leader and people are really delighted with the service you give, you can charge 10% more without losing the customer. That can quite often be a, a quite a percentage on your margin. Oh, I, 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 um, I've seen that over and over again because, and this is, <laughs> you, you, it's funny, Bob, because you, you, you sort of push us one, one of my, my hot buttons here, and that is the, the, the um, you know, companies who do um, customer satisfaction surveys and only reach out to their own customers. Yeah. Yes, it's important to know what your own customers think about you, but it's even more important to know what people think and how satisfied they are about uh, of your competitors' customers. Sure. Okay. And and we have seen that um, also in in in, um, in 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 many occasions where we do these pricing research and we find that. Um, um, a, a, a company's customers have a higher willingness to pay than the general population. Um, and, and that really means that the company is, is, is delivering something that is better than, than what they market at. Yes. Okay? Yes. And, and that's, a, I mean, that's a good position to be in. Um, it would be a lot worse if it's the, if it's the, the opposite. But, uh, but that typically doesn't happen. So, what are the um, most common pricing mistakes that um, businesses make? Well, I think the most common mistake is is not to think about pricing as something you can work on actively, and um, and 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 really uh, see that as a as, as a profit generator. Um, let me just give you an example: um, pricing on the nine. Okay. Yep. Um, is is pricing on the nine typically um, adds um, increases customer spend with twenty percent. So this is quite 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 a lot, you know. How do you explain that? Um, oh, it's because um, the, it, it has to do with the psychology of, of pricing. When we read uh, um, a number, okay, right. the very first digits. Um, in in our minds becomes far more important than the digits following that first digit. So if it is um, forty nine ninety five, uh, we we look at the four being this is the important piece um, versus fifty dollars. Okay, right, right. And 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 because it's it's not fifty, it's a four. It we truly believe it's a lot cheaper. Yes. 
Okay. And so just to give you a, a, a just to give you a little example here, we, we work with a company that um, they sell industrial electronics and, and they had, uh, we just took a top five SKUs right. that was priced at anywhere, you know, it's 4316 or 78, um, 35 or, you know, something like that. And we simply, we simply put him up on the line. Okay. Um, It took us all but three minutes and it added 158,000 to the company's bottom line. Wow. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, I must admit when I read... Well, I read the first couple of numbers, though. I must admit, when I when I look at a number and it's forty nine ninety five, instead of saying oh it's fifty bucks, I always say it's forty nine bucks. I don't know why I do that, but just something about me reads it as yeah. you know forty nine dollars. But if it was forty three, yeah. if forty three sixty five, and it was all all of a sudden forty nine ninety nine, I think I'd notice the difference. Maybe I wouldn't. Um, probably not, because um, when when. This is another um, error when, again, going back to the, the, the sort of business school case, yep. when they teach price elasticity, uh, they, they talk about this as a linear function. Yes. And we as humans are very non-linear. And, and that means that there are certain price points um, where, um, where there's, there, there can be large, um, diff, uh, large um, um, Changes in, in in sales volume based on a very small change in price, right? And and those those um, those borders, what we call them, price walls, are always, almost always, I should say, um, on on a on a fifty or on a hundred or a ten or a thousand or you know, so, yep. so they're on on on, um, on numbers which are. Um, you know, um, what do you call it? Uh, missing a word here. Um, so, so, so they're on, on these num- numbers, and between between those numbers, between, for example, in your case, forty to fifty, for example, yeah. um, chances are that that sales level will be um, the same. Right. Okay. Because it's only when you when you hit that inflection point from forty nine ninety nine to fifty. That um, people notice that people the difference. Start to react. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but one of the other things that um, a study that I read a couple of years ago was that um, in the US, um, and this fluctuates from country to country, but in the US, only about thirteen percent of people actually buy based on price. Now, those people um, predominantly do it for. Um, socioeconomic reasons, you know, they're, they're pinching every penny and they're trying to make everything go as far as they can. But the other 87%, um, while you can't sort of jack up prices willy-nilly, um, the other 80% are not really motivated by price. They're motivated by a whole bunch of other things, customer services, of access, delivery times, all of those sorts of things um, are far more important to people than the actual price. Yeah, and, and and that is that is one one reason why most most companies underprice themselves, um, but um, but some 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 companies also have they have certain products that are overpriced, certain products that are underpriced, 
And, and, and that's a, a, you know, this is sort of another tip that, that I can give to, to your listeners that um, if, you, if you look at the product portfolio or service portfolio, if you're a service company, um, some of those um, products um, are almost certainly unique or have some level of uniqueness to them. And, and unique products have, um, have pricing power. Right. Um, other, other products may be complete commodity. Now, a mistake companies often do is to, um, is to have the same pricing and discount policies um, across all the products. And, and what this means is that commodity products they have will be priced too high. Yep. And, the, and, the, and, the, and the unique products they have will be priced too low. Right. So, so one very, very simple thing uh, companies can do is to, is to go through and categorize their products. Um, we can call them uh, category A, B, and C, where category A are unique products and category C are uh, commodity products. Yep. And category B is somewhere in the, the middle. Right. Now, all these category A products, you can increase prices, you should stop all the discounting, and, um, and, and, and you need to message this to, to, your, to your salespeople. And the C products, Obviously, you have to work relentlessly on, on keeping costs low because it's only low price that will sell them. Yes. And, and the B products, you then want to look at, can we make them into an A product? Can we add something to it so that we get pricing power? Okay. So what's the right process for setting price? Is communication with the customer come into this? The the um, the problem the problem when when a company talks to its customers is that customers <laughs> lie. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and and well, think about it. If if you're you know, think about yourself. Think about myself. You know, um, if if I'm sitting if I'm standing there on on the on the car dealer lot, you know, and I really want that white car, you know. Yep. Um, Will I say to the dealer, I'll pay another two grand if you have it in white? Okay? Yeah. No, of course I wouldn't say that. Yeah. I will say, if you take another thousand bucks off the price, I'll get the white one. Yeah. Okay. You know? Yeah. Okay. So, you, and this is, this, is, this is what salespeople hear every day. You know? So, um, so people, and, 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 and these, are, these are lies, you know? And uh, of course, not every customer lie every time, but but sure. uh, most and and sometimes it's not necessarily lies, but it's sort of withholding information. Sure. And, and this always um, creates a sort of a corporate gut feel about the market and willingness to pay. That is not completely wrong, of course, because the company is in business, but it's rarely right either. So um, the, the process is really, to your question, the process is really to go out and measure willingness to pay, which you can do very accurately. Sure. You, you do that, uh, you have to do it anonymously so, so, so that folks don't understand that, that uh, what company is behind it. Yeah. And then correlate that willingness to pay with your marketing messages, your features and functions, your positioning statements, and, and all 
all that your company brings to the party. And, and, and then you have a recipe for setting prices and setting the right prices again with having that sort of data to, to, to do it from. Um, it's, it's a matter of minutes. Right. But you have to have the data. Yeah. So I always, uh, I always give an example of smart business as, um, you know, when I remember when Kodak brought out a printer and ink and they priced both of them with um, cost plus 20% or 25% mm-hmm. or whatever it was. And uh, Hewlett Packard came out and practically gave away their printers but charged through the nose for their ink. And uh, anybody that logically looked at those two business models would say that the um, um, cheaper ink model would work every time because, you know, you're going to use millions of gallons of ink, but you're only going to buy one printer. But in fact... Mm -hmm. Hewlett-Packard giving away the printers and charging through the nose. It's a bit like the razor blade situation. You give away the mm-hmm. shape, give away the razors to sell blades. Um, mm-hmm. But people, I don't know why people fall for that. Why did the Hewlett-Packard um, pricing model work and, and Kodak's didn't when Kodak over a period of time was obviously much cheaper? Um, it, uh, because because we as humans are not very good in planning. <laughs> um, and, and, and I can tell you a similar story, uh, uh, and this has to do with um, airline seats, premium economy airline seats. Right. Um, American Airlines, this is maybe six, eight years ago. Right. Um, American Airlines um, um, started to sell these uh, premium, uh, premium economy seats. Right. Uh, you know, 50 bucks extra or 100 bucks extra, whatever it was. And they failed miserably. Nobody bought them, okay? Okay. So they had to fill up these seats with people who pay their, you know, cheap tickets anyway because they, they had to, you know, fill them up. Right. Um, and, um, and then um, United did the same thing at about the same time or maybe a year later. And... Um, they didn't sell those um, more comfy seats at the time when you bought your ticket, but at the t- at the time when you checked in. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. And suddenly, um, you, I mean, so so consumers that has been conditioned to to only buy the lowest price. They had um, because airlines are commodity, of course. Yes. They they had the choice. Um, of a, a, a sort of a, a, a slightly more comfy seat and at, at, at um, American Airlines at a higher price or a cheaper price from from everybody else, and they, they selected the cheaper price. Um, and but then once you have divorced that decision to uh, to buy the the upgrade or or in the print case to buy the the expensive um, uh, ink. Um, you, you see that as two different positions. Yes. No, I they're not. They're not. You you forget, know, they're you, not um, and you forget about the amount you paid extra for the ticket two months ago or three months ago, and um, would right. you like to upgrade to a, a 
a, a better seat and it's only 75 bucks, well, geez, it's only 75 bucks. Why not? Yeah, I get yeah, that. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. I, I get that. And, and uh, Yeah, and, and also in the airline case, it's the, it's the um, you know, <laughs> you, you're standing there in the check-in and, and, you, and you think about how miserable you're going to be in a, in a <laughs> yeah. cramped little seat, you know. Yeah. And, and it's sort of there just in front of you, so... So the value of, of having some extra space suddenly becomes quite substantial. So, um, and uh, and going to your printer case, I, the, the the reason the reason HP was so, again so successful is that you look at you just look at that one one purchase. Yeah. Um, you, you you don't look at what are you going to I mean how much are you going to use over the next year or so. Yeah, that's um, true. So, um, so it's it's uh, it, and, and this goes also. I mean, all these games that have, that are free and have upsells in them, you know. Yep. Um, it, it's the same thing, you know. You it, it, when you're in the sort of the heat of the moment, the 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 um, uh, an upsell is 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 attractive as opposed to um, an initial purchase. So, are there any particular industries who are better than others at getting prices right? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, not in, not really in, 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 in my experience. Um, and, and we, we have worked across just about every industry. Um, there's, um, I mean, pricing, pricing, your pricing or the company's pricing really needs to be part and needs to be aligned with um, with with your uh, with your overall business strategy and um, and that is a, a, you asked me about mistakes and that's another um, mistake some some many companies do they they don't believe that um, that pricing is important enough um, but industries no I, I I I can't say that I know of any industries that are, that appear to Price better than others, so they're all bad at it. Uh, they're all bad at it, yeah, and uh, and in fact, what? That's you know, a good like thing five for you. years ago, <laughs> <laughs> um, five years ago, maybe six years ago, we did a study on uh, American uh, executives, and we said we asked them the question. I mean, if you look at the, the top level, um, there's only three things that affect your profits. Okay. Yeah. It is your sales volume. Yep. It is your cost, and it's your price. Yes. And um, and we we asked executives um, if you're going to increase profits, what is your preferred method? And eighty eight percent said more sales. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, another. Um, uh, another um, uh, six or maybe eight percent said better cost control, right? And 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 the balance, which is what four percent said, work with pricing, right? Okay. And um, what is what is uh, really um, common, though? Not, uh, and this is across industries, and and that is that the the companies who work actively with pricing are almost always the market leaders, mm, okay? Be- because good pricing practice 
um, pricing right gives you additional profits that you reinvest in the company. Reinvest to drive innovation, reinvest to better marketing, you can hire better people, sure. and so forth. Yep. So, so yeah. yeah. Um, are there tools that people can use for pricing? Apart from the ones that um, you mentioned? Well, the, for, if, for, for, if, for, if, if you're a, a fairly large company and, and you have uh, lots and lots of transactions, there's, there's price management software. Right. Um, there is a, um, there's a half dozen vendors and um, it, it, it sort of takes the pricing process into, into a piece of software. Some of those uh, software packages focus more on supporting the process of setting prices and others um, are focusing more on, on optimizing prices. And um, typically, and, and we're talking about companies that have maybe 10,000, 50,000, a million SKUs. Right. And, 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 and may have, um, you know, hundreds, thousands, a million transactions a, a month, you know. Yep. So, so large companies. And, um, and these are expensive software packages that requires, um, it requires um, integration into their ERP and POS system and, 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 and so forth. But on the other hand, um, they typically add between three to five percent um, of 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 revenue as profits, mm. which is substantial if you're a multi-billion-dollar company. It's very substantial. Okay, we're just yeah. we're just about out of time. But if if mm-hmm. you're listening to this program and you've got a company and you're not sure about your pricing, and you go to Atenga, which is A-T-E-N-G-A, and speak to Per. What can somebody expect to pay? I know that depends on the size of the company and a whole bunch of other things, but just as a ballpark, what? how do people pay you for your services? Um, well, we, we like you say, it's uh, how long is a piece of string? Sure. It all depends. <laughs> Um, but um, we, we, we price our services um, so that um, you typically get a return on investment between um, two to three weeks. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so it, it's, it's a reasonable cost and it's well worth making a phone call. Absolutely. The, the, in fact, um, the, 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 the longest return on investment um, a, company, a client of ours ever had, I think, was about four weeks. Wow, and 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 that was <laughs> that was only because they decided to um, they decided to 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 apply our, our recommendation on a single skew out of their five thousand skews. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Perth, thanks very very much for joining me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I really appreciate it. Now, if you are listening and you don't and you think that your products are maybe not priced correctly, and you'd like to find more out more about PER and how to correctly price your product, go to Atenga, A-T-E-N-G-A dot com. That's Atenga, A-T-E-N-G-A dot com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show right after this short break. 
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And this week, broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, where technology meets entertainment. I um, I reckon that uh, millennials get a bad rap. I'm always hearing people talking about millennials being in, entitled, they're selfish, they're lazy, um, you know, self-centered. I couldn't agree, I couldn't disagree more. I think that's a lot of baloney. I um, the millennials that I've had anything to do with through my son's college and and other places, I think are exactly the opposite of that. I think they're um, they really care about the planet. They they work hard. They're um, I don't think they're uh, they believe they're entitled. I think they they want to work hard for what they get. So let me just tell you about a few millennials. When fourteen year old fourteen year old Taylor Rosenthal is not playing baseball for Opiliki Opelika High School, he's creating his own business. While in eighth grade, every time a kid got hurt at a tournament. Nobody could find a Band-Aid or whatever the other stuff is that you put on injuries. And Taylor wanted to come up with a solution. So the freshman entrepreneur from Alabama is now CEO of RecMed First Aid, a vending machine uh, that um, dispenses first aid product instead of snacks. He turned down an offer of $30 million dollars from a major healthcare company's free spending machine idea. And uh, Taylor is 14. So I wouldn't thought he was um, entitled or selfish or lazy. Um, in September 2016, 13-year-old Amber Kelly won the televised culinary competition Food Network Star Kids, which landed her a Food Network web series. And since 2012, she's been the star of her own healthy cooking YouTube channel, Cook with Amber, and currently has more than 37,000 subscribers. Her work was recognised by Michelle Obama at a White House dinner. Highly, hardly entitled or lazy. At the age of nine, Nehu Gupta began selling handmade charms door-to-door and at community events to raise money for school books and other educational expenses for orphans. She created Empower Orphans, a registered non-profit organisation which has conducted more than 27 projects and raised more than $1.6 million for orphans for school products. And Gupta recently received the International Children's Peace Prize. Again, hardly entitled or lazy. Nick D'Alessio can proudly say that a multinational corporation purchased his company and made him a multi-millionaire. At 15, he developed Sumley, 
which is a summarization app that algorithmically creates summaries of news articles optimized for the iPhone. In March of 2013, Yahoo acquired Delosio's company for $30 million, another millennial that is obviously not lazy or feeling entitled. Mark Bow is a 17-year-old high school senior and has already launched 11 web-based companies and he's sold three of them along with three non-profit foundations, 17, 11 companies. Mm, doesn't sound lazy to me. Adam Horwitz, 18, teaches people how to make money online. His courses, Tycoon Cashflow and Cell Phone Treasurer, have each earned over $100,000, and his latest, Mobile Monopoly, has bagged $1.5 million in three days, and it's set all sorts of affiliate marketing records. Not bad for an 18-year-old. Obviously not lazy. Now, um, Juliet Brindack launched a Buy Girls for Girls website where tweens can go to safely interact, get advice, and play flash games. She sold over 120,000 books. Procter & Gamble invested in Miss O and Friends, and the company's value is $15 million. Another millennial. Now, Catherine Cook, who's a junior at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., where my son went to school, has made $20 million from Dorm Room and MyYearBook.com has over 20 million members, is ranked in the top 25 most trafficked websites in the US, and it pulls in $20 million in annual revenue. Another millennial that is hardly lazy or entitled. Now, easy come, easy go. Andrew Fashion dropped out of high school and started developing websites. After months of just scraping by, Andrew hit it big. He was pulling in $100,000 plus every month. But after a few years of living the high life, the revenue stream dried up and Andrew made and lost $2.5 million. Now, there's a millennial that may have felt entitled. <laughs> I invite you to go to my website bobpritchard.com and enrol for my daily newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds to read. And if you read, I was looking through them today for about the last six months. That's how many, six uh, times um, um, 24 is about 150-odd websites, If you um, newsletters. If you'd read every one of those, you would be the smartest little duck on the block. And it, the people at work would be impressed. I'm telling you, I guarantee you, people at work would be really impressed with how much you know about a wide variety of subjects. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Next week, we'll be back broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard, where technology meets entertainment, and I hope you can join me again. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful. Continue to work hard because the alternative really sucks. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.